I hope the evaluation form doesn't say, how did you feel about this conference? Um, all right, well, we get to the third session, and this is, this is actually one where, in, in my estimation, it's where the, the first two pieces of the foundation end up getting tied together um, with sort of a biblical clarity. And uh, we're going to look at the emotional life of Christ, our perfect pattern. And uh, just a few... Uh, biblical premises, and that is, first of all, Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, is actually the perfect image of God. Now, I alluded to this at the end of of our last session, but the Bible tells us very clearly that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, and I, I want you to see these texts for yourself, and so if you'll turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4... 2 Corinthians chapter 4, a passage that we referred to last session, but there's a little expression that Paul uses. Notice, start at verse 3, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the glory of Christ. And notice this, who is the image of God. And so the way that that Paul actually speaks of Christ is that he is the image of the invisible God. In that great uh, early Christian hymn that we have in Colossians chapter 1, Verse 15, that's exactly the way that Paul starts out. He is the image of the invisible God. Now, what did God actually prohibit in the Old Testament? Making what? Images of Him. It was prohibited. In in, in the Ten Commandments, God actually says, "...you shall not make any image of me." from heaven or on earth or under the earth. In other words, imaging God visibly was prohibited. And we say, well, I wonder why that was. And you could say, and this would be true, it's because God is spirit, doesn't have a body like men. That's true. And so there's no image in heaven on earth that could actually reflect accurately what God is like. But there's also another part of why images were prohibited, and that is because there is only one true image, and that would be Jesus Christ himself. Jesus, as the eternal Son of the Father, is the perfect representation of the Father. So the writer to the Hebrews says that God, after he spoke long ago through the, uh, through the, to the fathers, through the prophets, in many portions, many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, and then he dis- starts to describe the majesty of Christ, and he says two things about Jesus in that opening section of Hebrews. He is, first of all, the exact representation of his nature. 
In other words, what the writer to the Hebrews says is that Jesus Christ as the, as the Son of God is actually the precise imprint. Sometimes um, some commentators will use the fact that the word that's, that's, that's used there is, um, has to do with what would be a, a, a ring that would be used as a seal and that ring would be then put onto a little uh, a blob of wax and what would happen is, is that the imprint was pushed down onto that wax. That wax would then perfectly, precisely reflect the image that had been imprinted on it. And so for the writer to the Hebrews, he describes Jesus as the exact representation of God's nature. Then he says, and he is the effulgence or the outshining of his glory. Jonathan Edwards actually explained that like this. Jesus Christ is to the Father what the rays of the sun are to the sun. They are in essence the very same as the sun, but they're shining out from the sun. And so Jesus Christ is, is, as it were, the outshining of God's glory. You see this actually in the incarnation. What happens? Jesus Christ enters into this world. How does he enter into this world? He enters as the son of God who has become man. And what happens, for instance, on the Mount of Transfiguration, what happens is that the, uh, the, the humiliation of Christ Christ's humanity is kind of peeled back a little bit and the disciples actually are able to see the transfiguration that is the revelation of the glory of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus in the upper room is telling the disciples, um, I go away to my father. And Philip says, Lord, Show us the Father, and it will be enough for us. And Jesus says, Have I been with you so long? Don't you know that when you've seen me, you've seen the Father? In other words, Jesus is saying, listen, I actually mediate the very presence and the very character of my Father. Now, he's not saying I am the Father in the sense of some confusing the Trinity. The Father is always the Father. The Son is always the Son. But there is one eternal God who exists in three persons. And Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, is the exact representation of the Father's divine nature. And so Jesus Christ, as God's divine Son reveals that God himself, what? Actually has perfect emotions. Now, we need to um, tie in something else here before we start to explore that, and that is Jesus Christ as the divine Son not only perfectly reflects the Father, right? Fully and completely reflects the Father, but Jesus Christ in his incarnation is also perfect man. If you actually want to see what humanity was designed by God to be, then you look at Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is actually perfect humanity. In Christ, we see human nature as human nature ought to be. So in, in, we talk about Jesus this way. Jesus is actually the God-man. 
Our early church fathers wrestled with, with you know, how can Jesus be 100% God and 100% man because 100 plus 100 doesn't equal 100, it equals 200. And this is the mystery of what theologians have called the hypostatic union. That is, there is one person who has two natures, a human nature and a divine nature, and Jesus is actually perfect God and perfect humanity. And so he comes into this world. Notice what Paul calls Jesus sometimes. He calls him the last Adam. So just as Adam came into this world made in the image and likeness of God and, of course, fell and actually marred that image, Jesus Christ comes into the world as perfect humanity and actually images God perfectly as man. And so understand what I'm doing here is we've looked at the fact that God is a God of perfect emotion, right? And so we're made in the image and likeness of God, so we're to reflect that. But Jesus Christ actually, in a sense, gives us two perspectives. One of the divine son, so he reflects perfectly the father and perfect humanity, so he reflects what we ought to be as human beings. And so it's in Jesus that we actually see what our emotional life should look like as we look to him. Now, here's the amazing thing. I mentioned earlier that one of the reasons why we have a hard time going from God who's perfect, holy emotion to ourselves is because our emotions are anything but perfect and holy. So we kind of have a hard time putting those things together because of our sin, as we talked about last session. But here's the glorious thing. Jesus Christ comes into this world altogether without sin. So whatever we may say about Jesus' emotional displays in the course of the ministry of his life, what we have to say, what we have to conclude is that every time Jesus displayed emotion, it was perfect, holy, sinless emotion. Because Paul says, for instance, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. So you get that. He made him who knew no sin, right? Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, Jesus was made just like us in every way with one exception, yet without sin. Hebrews chapter 7, 27, he is pure, holy, undefiled, separated from sinners. And so Jesus Christ is the perfect, sinless Son of God. And so as we look at him, what we have is a perfect image of what God is like and what humanity is supposed to be like. And so B.B. Warfield, in a classic article, I would, I would highly recommend reading this, uh, is called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. And B.B. Uh, Warfield, the great Princeton theologian, wrote It belongs to the truth of our Lord's humanity that he was subject to all sinless emotions. So Jesus Christ as man, as man ought to be, reveals how human beings ought to exercise their emotions as a fundamental part of our humanity. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at Jesus at least just in, in, in this session, as our perfect pattern. Now, right away, right away, I'll tell you that I feel a reluctance in saying we're going to look at Jesus Christ as our perfect pattern. And one of the reasons is, is because when we start talking about Jesus as our example or as our perfect pattern, we run into an immediate danger. 
And that danger is actually just moralism. The idea of of turning Jesus into a mere moral example actually ends up leading us astray in profound ways. You might remember, what was it, 15, 20 years ago, the WWJD craze. You remember that? What would Jesus do? That was based on a book uh, in his steps. And uh, the idea was basically you're living life and you're asking yourself in various situations, what would Jesus do? Well, what we need to understand is that that motto, what would Jesus do, and turning Jesus into a moral example for us actually could just as easily be a theme or a motto for theological liberals that don't even believe the gospel. Many people who would deny the substitutionary atonement or the physical resurrection of the Lord Jesus could say, I think Jesus was a good moral ethical teacher and his life is worthy of emulation. And so, so my, my reservation of saying Jesus Christ is a perfect pattern for us is that we have to understand this. If Jesus is just merely a moral example to us, then we actually don't know Jesus as we ought, and we're not following Jesus as we should. Some people heap Jesus into the same category of Gandhi or Buddha or, or some other moral teacher and think that they're trying, trying to live out the Sermon on the Mount is what Christianity is all about. And what I want to be abundantly clear about is that there are, before we ever get to Jesus as my moral example, we have to realize that there are these great indicatives of the gospel. All right? So... Here, here, J. Gresson Machen, back in the 1920s, wrote a book called Christianity and Liberalism. And his whole point was that liberalism was not Christianity. It was just taking the imperatives of the gospel without having the indicatives of the gospel. And you go, what in the world are you talking about? Indicatives, imperatives. Are you one of those grammar nuts? And the answer is yes, grammar. You have to, I won't say it this forcefully, but I want to, in order to know God, you better learn some grammar, all right? Now, why? Because the indicative tells us what has been done. Indicative is a statement of fact, all right? I ate dinner at Sean's house, indicative, all right? Imperative is the mood of command, right? And so imperatives at my house look like this. Alex, go clean your room. Now, are imperatives always certain? (laughs) No, just look at Alex's room. It's proof that imperatives are not certain. You can give a command, and maybe it'll be followed, maybe not. But here's the reality. The indicatives of the gospel focus on what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, and that has to come first before we ever look to Jesus as our example or pattern. Okay. In other words, what I'm saying is, before Jesus can ever be your example, he has to first be your redeemer. He must first be your savior. It is the indicatives of what God has accomplished for us through the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ that is the foundation for all of your Christian life. Understand this, you cannot get to heaven unless you actually know that Jesus Christ has actually gone to the cross, paid the penalty for your sin, 
assuaged the wrath of God, been laid in the tomb and raised up on the third day bodily and ascended into heaven. And he, as the savior of the world, is the object of your faith. That's what it means to believe the indicatives of the gospel, to believe what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And so as we look at this, we have to understand knowing what Christ has done for us in redemption and experiencing the power of his redemption personally ends up then being the foundation then to a life that is lived following his example. So we have to remember the reality is the indicatives come first. But then we also have to remember that the imperatives always follow. In other words, the gospel is not just simply believe what God has done. The gospel says when you believe what God has done, now God actually has lordship over your life and now tells you how to live. And so the gospel imperatives always follow the gospel indicatives and those who are redeemed actually then live a life that is worthy of of their calling. And so most clearly, the pattern for our life is none other than Jesus Christ. Think about the beauty of that for a moment. When you think about living life, here we are created as human beings. We have, we have fallen into sin. Our life has become um, uh, enmeshed and enslaved in sin. God comes and sets us free. And what he does is he restores to us the beauty of the humanity of what it means to be made in his image and likeness. There is, as I said earlier, it is an amazing thing to be a human being, but it is exponentially more amazing to be a redeemed human being. And so, conformity to Jesus Christ is actually the goal of our salvation. You remember what Paul says. So so you understand what we're saying, right? So Jesus is our redeemer. He saves us. But the goal of that salvation is that our lives would be conformed to his image. In other words, he becomes the perfect pattern for us. And so here's the glorious thing. Paul puts it like this. We know this passage. God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. And those whom he foreknew, he predestined. And those whom he predestined, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. In other words, when God started the plan to save us, the ultimate goal is that we would all look like Jesus that we would all be conformed to the very image of God's own son. And and so that is the, the beauty. And so you think to yourself, okay, so God has saved me. And ultimately, one of these days, I'm gonna actually look like Jesus. And that's absolutely true. Those whom he predestined, he justified, or called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. And what's gonna happen? We're going to be conformed to the image of the one who is our older brother. Romans 8, 28 to 30. And so that's what's going to happen one day. So one of these days, maybe you'll die first, maybe I'll die first, maybe the Lord will return during our lifetime. We don't know. But on that day, 
God is going to do an absolute transforming work so that the good work he began in us will be finally and totally completed and I will be, you will be, perfectly conformed to the image of God's Holy Son who is the exact representation of the Father's nature. Now, you might say to yourself, well, that's good, and I'm glad that that's the end game, and so in the meantime, um, I'll just do what I please, right? No, that's not the way it works. You don't say, well, since the end is already secure, God says he's going to do this, then I'm just going to, you know, I'm just going to, you know, lean back in the lazy boy and take the easy road to heaven. That's not true because not only is conformity to God's son the great goal of our predestination, it is also the great goal of our sanctification, In other words, God wants the project going on right now. And so look over at Colossians chapter 3, a text that I already referred to. Colossians chapter 3. We're going to start at verse 8 because this afternoon we're going to be in this text a little bit more. Colossians 3, 8. But now you also... Put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old man with its evil practices and have put on the new man who's being renewed to the true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Now... Some of your Bibles say old self, new self. Any of your Bibles say that old self, new self? Now, I'm going I'm to make a case here as briefly as I can, and that is I don't think that old self, new self is the best way to translate what Paul's talking about here. I think Paul's ta- when he says old man, new man, I think he's actually talking about old man, life in Adam, new man, life in Christ. In other words, the old man is Adam, the new man is Christ, and so here is Paul's picture of the Christian life. I am learning to actually put off the old man, which means the old life, all the things that used to mark my life before I became a Christian. I am learning actually to remove those things, and then I'm also learning to actually put on Christ. And so Paul says, Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its desires thereof. And so the idea is, my Christian life is marked both by, on the one hand, a negative aspect, putting off the old, but then it's also marked by a beautiful positive aspect, and that is putting on the new. That is, I become increasingly identified with Jesus Christ. I become increasingly conformed to Jesus Christ so that the goal of my salvation, the goal of my sanctification is actually to do what? To become more and more and more Christ-like in my life. Wives, would you, would you be in favor of your husbands being more Christ-like? <laughs> you don't let them talk in church, do you, Sean? Yeah. <laughs> now, if my wife was here, she would have said, Amen. All right? <laughs> she said, Amen. 
I'm sure Tanya was back there nodding her head. Yes, more Christ-like would be good. Husbands, do you wish your wife was more Christ-like? <laughs> yeah, okay. So, so we, we understand this is, this is the great thing about sanctification. This is the goal of my growth is that I become more and more and more like Jesus himself. And so the goal of our predestination is conformity to the image of Christ. The goal of our sanctification is increased conformity to Christ, but conformity to the image of Christ is also one of our great present conscious duties as the people of God. In other words, it's not just something that's a good idea, it's actually something that God tells us that we need to be consciously doing. Look over at 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, or chapter 2, excuse me. 1 Peter chapter 2. Notice, starting in verse 21, the Apostle Peter says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross or on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. And so notice Peter actually says that Jesus suffered for us. And in that suffering, he left us an example for us to follow. Now, is that the only thing that Peter says that Jesus did for us? And the answer is absolutely not. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. So Peter's not just telling us, follow Jesus' example as one who suffered on behalf of others, but he is saying, follow Jesus' example because that's part of what he left us. But understand this and never forget it. He actually bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. In other words... The only way we will ever be able to follow in Jesus' steps is when we understand that our sins have been nailed to the cross and that I've died in Christ so that I can live to righteousness unto God. In other words, it is the very cross of Jesus with its redeeming power that empowers me now to do what? To actually follow in his steps. Now, That suffering part, that doesn't usually appeal to us very much, does it? But Jesus reminds us by his own life that we're called to suffer. What's interesting to me is that there are many things that are exemplary about the Lord Jesus. Peter focuses on his suffering because we too will suffer, right? I hope that you don't believe in a twisted gospel message that says that God wants you to live a pain-free life. 
That's actually not the gospel at all. In fact, Paul could say in Philippians 1.29, it has not only been appointed to you to believe in Christ, but to suffer for his name. In the book of Job, it says this, man was born for trouble, just as sure as sparks fly upward. And so as we suffer, and Peter's book talks a lot about suffering. He says, as you suffer, child of God, As you suffer, remember Jesus left you an example of how to suffer. To suffer by entrusting yourself to the Father's care. Suffering in a way in which you're fixed on the Father and on doing His will. I have accomplished all the work. Father, I have glorified you upon the earth by having accomplished all that you've given me to do. Jesus was actually singularly fixed on doing the will of the Father, entrusting Himself to the Father, suffering in a way that manifested that God's plan and God's will for His life were the most important. And Peter says He left us an example in His suffering. You will never ever be able to follow that example by merely willing it to be so. Your heart better be gripped by something gripped by the magnitude and glory of the grace of God and the magnificence of his purpose and the glory of the cross and the power of the gospel. It's in the context of those things that we look to Jesus as the one that we follow in his steps. First Corinthians or First John chapter 2. First John chapter 2 verse 4. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. And so here's John, the the wonderful apostle of love, who tells us actually that if we say that we know God and yet we're not keeping his commandments, John just says, here's the reality. You're a liar. The truth isn't in you. But if you actually say that you know him, then you need to walk in the same way Jesus walked. That is, Jesus Christ is, is, is the model for the Christian life in all of its fullness. Think about what Paul told the Corinthians. You remember this, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I've thought about that as a pastor many times. And I thought, that is, that's like one of the last things I would ever want to say. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. What a, what a high, holy calling. Follow me as I follow Christ. But Paul knew that his life had a shape to it. It had a direction to it. And he followed the Lord Jesus Christ as an imitator of the Lord Jesus and then could turn around and amazingly commend himself to the Corinthians. 
as one who was worthy to follow. So, we're predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Sanctification is increased conformity to the image of Christ. And conformity to the image of Christ is the present Christian duty. We are to follow in his steps, suffer as he suffered. We are to walk as he walked. We are to imitate him. And so, if that's true, now we come back full circle. If that's true, then, then, then what are we looking at? Jesus Christ is perfect God. He's perfect man. And therefore, he manifests for us what? perfect emotion now think about Jesus emotional life for a minute there's actually one emotion that is that is mentioned more times in the gospel than any other in relationship to the Lord Jesus anybody want to guess what it is what love close compassion compassion Now, the the reason that we know compassion is an emotive word is because the word itself, which is a terrific Greek word, splognizomai, anytime you can put those sounds together, it's just just fun to say, splognizomai. The idea is is, is that which is visceral, that which is, uh, you know, sometimes like the King James would say like kidneys or bowels or things like that. That is that, that seat of emotion. And so compassion, Jesus actually shows compassion over and over and over again in the Gospels. Compassion is the chief emotion that Jesus shows. And of course, does that not make sense? What is the God of the Bible but a God of compassion? God actually shows compassion on his people in in so many different ways. And to to have compassion is, is two things. It's to actually feel pity, but then it is to take action in light of that felt pity. That's what it is to have compassion. It is both feeling and action that converge together. And so here's Jesus, and and he's in the synagogue, opening chapter of the Gospel of Mark, and a leper comes up to him. Stop and think about what a leper would have been like in the first century. First of all, you were an outcast. If you were a leper, you lived outside of the city limits. You did not live around other people. Leviticus 13 would actually tell you that if you were around people, do you know what you had to do? Leviticus 13, you had to put your hand over your mouth and you had to announce your arrival by saying what really unflattering word? Unclean, unclean. Mosaic law prohibited people from touching lepers. You could not, and of course we can see that there were obviously medical reasons why you wouldn't want to touch a leper. But here's Jesus, he's in the synagogue in Capernaum and a leper comes up to him and falls down before him and says, Lord, if you're willing to make me clean, you can make me clean. There is a sense in which that leper actually demonstrates not only an incredible courage. Do do you understand? Lepers did not actually just come into the synagogue. They weren't welcome. They were outcasts. So he, he plucks up the courage to come into the synagogue. There's something about Jesus that compels him to see this man... This man is probably the Messiah, and if he's the Messiah, he can cleanse lepers. He is my only hope. And so he goes with a sense of courage, but also a sense of desperation, falls on his knees and asks Jesus, make me clean. If you're willing, you can do it. And the text says, Mark 141, Jesus moved with compassion. 
stretched forth his hand and touched him. I wonder how long it had been since that man had felt human touch. Years. Decades. We don't know for sure, but one thing, as long as he had been a leper, he had never felt human touch. And Jesus moved with compassion touches the leper pity and then action I am willing be clean and right there on the spot the man is cleansed Jesus will have compassion on widows who have lost sons. Jesus will have compassion on those who are the downcast, on the blind, the mute, the deaf. He will have compassion on those who were in need. And that compassion was always followed up by doing something, performing an act of mercy on behalf of someone who needed it. And so here, here's what I want us to see. Jesus Christ is the perfect reflection of what we ought to be as human beings. We've been redeemed to be conformed to his image. And one thing that we can say with absolute certainty that to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ means that we actually learn what it is to put on a heart of compassion. I don't know about you, but for me, that's, this, that's not one of the easiest things for me to do. My wife is, is incredibly compassionate. She is, she is a person who models compassion to me and, and, and oftentimes put me, puts me to shame. She, uh, she is an ESL teacher, uh, teaches English second language. She's a liaison with the Hispanic families in our community through our school. And, and oftentimes these people find themselves in incredible need. Oftentimes the, the wives and the mothers find themselves left by the father and the husband and, and, and having to fend for themselves. And so she's taking phone calls at 11 o'clock at night and helping people find housing. And she's just, and, and, and at the drop of a hat, she's willing to help. And I see that and I see the likeness of Jesus in her if we're to be conformed to the image of Jesus, it means that we're people of compassion. And do you know what that, that, that requires? That requires that we actually begin to think in a way that, understand, the, the thinking is what transforms the feeling, and we need to start thinking about people differently. 
There is something inside of me that actually I want to be with people who are like me and I feel sort of uncomfortable with people who are not like me and therefore people who are not like me who are in need are probably less likely to be objects of my compassion than if I see somebody who's just like me and I see them in need. And so there's something in us because of the fall where we actually draw back from people that are different than us and yet Jesus Christ is the manifestation of true godly compassion. He reflects the heart of the Father. He reflects humanity as we ought to be. And if anything about his life comes shining through, it's that we ought to be people of compassion to those who are in need. In our church, we have, we have a, a home. It's called City of Refuge. And um, we take care of unwed pregnant girls who are in trouble. We don't take any money from the state. We don't want the state telling us what to do. We want to run it in the way that we believe God would have us to run it. The girls that come in oftentimes are, are as one of our elders says, these are not usually the prom queens or the uh, valedictorians of their class. And oftentimes they're ungrateful Oftentimes they're defiant, they're resistant, they hate coming to church. And it would be really easy to actually just hold them at arm's length because they're just different. And it is the compassion of Jesus that moves in the midst of our church so many times outstripping my compassion that these girls actually feel loved and their hearts are softened and open to the gospel. What is it that does that? It's not that we give them free prenatal care. It's not that we give them a really nice place to live and make sure that they've got three really good meals a day. It's actually feeling loved and feeling compassion by God's people that opens their heart to the gospel. There are other aspects. I would challenge you to actually take up the gospels and read through the Gospels and identify the emotions of Jesus. Did Jesus ever get angry? Yeah, yeah. In fact, we'll look at that when we deal with anger because a lot of times our anger is kind of not like Jesus' anger, right? (laughs) That's what we have to talk about it. But Jesus was angry and yet without sin. Jesus was devoted to the will of the Father. Devotion is, is, is an emotion. Jesus delighted to do the will of the Father. Jesus loved even the unlovely. You remember the rich young ruler, Mark chapter 10? Rich young ruler comes up to him, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? Right? Now, how many of us would look at that and say, man, that is an incredible evangelistic opportunity. I'm so glad that you came up and asked that question. Let me tell you how you can have eternal life and how many of us would have actually answered in the way that Jesus did. (laughs) I don't think many of us would have done what Jesus did. Somebody goes, what must I do to have eternal life? Jesus says, well, keep the commandments. Now, I don't think anybody's willing to say, that's not the right answer. (laughs) And of course, what does the rich young ruler say? Oh, I've done. uh, Which ones? Which ones? And Jesus gives him what we call the second table of the law. 
Obey your mother and father. Don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery. Hey, I've done all that from my youth up. And then Jesus says, one thing that you lack. Go and sell everything that you have and then come and follow me and then you'll have eternal life. Oh, now Jesus isn't giving a prescription for everybody to sell everything they have, but what Jesus is doing is he's putting his finger on the man's idol, which was what? His own possessions. And until you're willing to repent of your idolatry, which is going to be manifest by you willing to give it all up, you're not worthy to be my disciple. And so what does the man do? The man looks sad. And then Mark tells us, because he owned much property. And then Mark's gospel is the only one that says this. And Jesus looked on him and loved him. This guy goes away. Now, we don't know what happened to the rich young ruler, do we? We would be wrong to make any conclusions about what happened later in his life. We don't know. But what we do know is at that particular moment, he chose his possessions over Jesus. At that moment in time, he chose his possessions over Jesus, and yet Jesus looked at him and loved him. Do you know how many times we ourselves, because we feel personally insulted, because we feel personally rejected, when people don't do the things that we tell them to do, they don't do the things that we want them to do, oftentimes we take it as a personal offense and are angry with somebody and we look down on somebody and here is somebody that just actually turns away, rejects the offer of eternal life and Jesus looks at him and loves him. I would suggest to you that there is a whole lot about Jesus' emotional life that we can learn from and be transformed by. I don't know about you, but I know I need to be a more compassionate person. I know I need to be a more loving person I know that my devotion and my delight needs to be transformed into the things that please God. Where do I find the perfect reflection of those things? In Jesus himself. And so I cry out, Lord, help me. Give me the grace to be more like you. Give me the grace to be tender and compassionate. Give me the grace to be more loving. Give me the grace to be more patient. Jesus was patient. Lord, I have two sons. Please give me more patience. And the Spirit of God, as he works in our life, is working to conform us more and more into the image of Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would call us so clearly and equip us so powerfully to learn of our Savior. He tells us to learn of him. We pray that we would learn of him. We pray, Father, that the whole panorama of human emotion that he displays would be a model for us and that we by grace would seek to be transformed into his image. We ask this in his name, amen. Very good, yes. Glad that you've been here and attentive again. Uh, Brian, just so you know, um, good, good Baptists don't,